You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Before we do anything, we consult with Ira Jersey, our interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he joins us now. Ira, in one of your most recent pieces, I read that um, there's a variety of different types, there are a variety of flattening types when it comes to the yield curve. And I'm wondering, what's the difference? I thought, you know, I thought flat is flat, but apparently not. Yeah, so so there's basically two ways that the curve can uh, can change, and one way is during uh, market sell-offs, and the other way is during market rallies. And um, and and what, what what when you look at the history of interest rates and what the curve's done versus the economy, what you find is that it's really when you get bear flattening, and that's the type of flattening that we've had now that's preceded economic slowdowns. But when you get um, when you get bull flattening, so flattening, for example, like we had in 2010, 20 when the Fed was buying long-end bonds, and you wound up getting a very flat yield curve as well, that tended uh, th- that type of flattening actually tends to be good for the economy. So it's basically that you have low interest rates. People are um, people are trying to stimulate the economy by um, by taking advantage of those low interest rates. But when the curve flattens while the front end is selling off, it's it's not so good. So you know there is a reason for uh, kind of a little bit of concern with the, the the yield curve being as flat as it is. And quite frankly, just from a technical perspective, we're sitting right on top of a very important technical level for um, for the two-year two versus 10-year Treasury curve. Okay. So, in other words, for all of the enthusiasm we hear about stocks, all the optimism, the yield curve to you is sending an ominous message that traders need to pay attention to uh, that is saying that the U.S. economy is slowing down and is heading towards some kind of downturn. Well, so it takes a long, there's long leads here. So when the yield curve gets to zero, gets to to flat, what you've experienced over the last 40 years or so was sometime within the next two to four years. So again, long, uh, long lag there. Within two to four years, you tend to get an economic slowdown. But it, you know, it's not the curve itself that's causing that. It's, you know, the reason why we get this bear flattening is because front end interest rates are being increased by the Federal Reserve. So, um, so 
it's really the, a policy error. So it's really the, the actions of the central bank that is causing the, the curve to flatten. And that's where um, you wind up getting the slowdown in the economy. You know, one of the impacts and effects of that and kind of the canary in the coal mine might be the flattening curve. But, it's, um, but like I mentioned, the curve being flat in and of itself isn't necessarily bad. It's the way that it flattens and why. And that's, uh, that's the policy error part of this. All right. So policy error from the Fed. Of course, uh, Fed Chair Janet Yellen is going to step down as soon as the appointed uh, next Fed Chair, Jerome Powell, is uh, confirmed and sworn in early next year. I'm wondering, given the fact that Chair Yellen is going to be departing and given the uh, vacancies already among among the uh, Fed governors, can we really even have visibility into the path of the Fed's rate hikes next year? I mean, presumably the, the, the sort of policy error here is that they're hiking too fast. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, and or that the market thinks that they're hiking too fast or, or that they'll hike too much, one or the other. But either way, it would be a, that would be a policy error. And it, it, you know, it's hard to judge what the future Fed's going to be. We're going to get a whole lot of new governors. We already have a number of new members of the FOMC in, in the form of, of several presidents uh, who have been uh, appointed recently. Um, and you're going to get a new, uh, a new vice chair of the Federal Open Market Committee when, uh, um, when New York Fed President Dudley uh, uh, re- retires at the end of next year or resigns um, uh, sometime next year. So so we really don't know exactly what future monetary policy will bring. So that's one reason why listening to the confirmation hearings of Jerome Powell and, uh, uh, you know, who the, who the president picks as the next vice chair, those two seats in particular will probably be very important for, um, for what the future of monetary policy is. W- will they be more dovish? Will they be more hawkish? Or will they stay the course? Like, we, it's, you know, we can all make speculation. But in reality, I don't think anyone quite knows at this point. I just want to go back to something you talked about having to do with this flattening of the yield curve and your analysis that the last time that this offered itself, we saw a lot of bond buying by the Federal Reserve, by the central bank. Mm -hmm. That's not taking place now. No, that's right. And in fact, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve is um, already starting to allow its portfolio to run off. And starting in, in probably February or March next year, the Treasury Department is going to have to start issuing more bonds, uh, partially due to um, to this extra supply that the Fed's not going to be buying every every month when they have maturities, but also because there's going to be higher deficits starting next year, um, just because Medicare and, and Social Security payments are going to go up and, and the potential for additional deficits based on on the budget that Congress passed recently, which could add another $150 billion of potential supply into the market. So so there is going to be this uh, this supply, uh, I don't want to call it fear, but there is going to be certainly a supply push, which is going to have to be absorbed. And that could certainly affect prices. And where and how it affects those prices will be determined by what bonds the Treasury Department decides to issue. So will this be a good empirical test that if stock prices continue to move high or are higher, let's say, in 2018, that the argument that stock prices moved because of this extra liquidity from central banks, that theory would be tossed out the window if we saw prices accelerate. 
Well, I, I think you know liquidity is is a strange is a strange thing. I, I think one of the the things is is that you've you've seen now more recently the fact that you don't need all the liquidity from the Federal Reserve for the economy to run. I mean, basically, what the Fed did when they did all the bond buying, did all the quantitative easing, was to try and jumpstart the economy. It was kind of like you know putting a doctor putting on the uh, um, the you know the AED and and trying to you know kickstart your heart. That's basically what QE is. But now you know the economy is pumping it on its own, and it doesn't necessarily need all the accommodation that it's had. Now, the problem is, is that if you pull that accommodation out too quickly, you have a detrimental effect. And that's, I think, the worry. And that's, that's, that's really going to be Powell's, um, the, the challenge for the Powell, Powell Fed is not removing accommodation too fast that you really stifle the economy and you wind up hurting things like corporate profits and the like. Ira, real quick, which yield curve do you look at? So, so you know, the one that has the the best um, the best correlation to the economy is the two year versus ten year Treasury yield curve. Okay. Um, you know, that that's the main one. All right, Ira Jersey, thank you so much for joining us uh, as always. Well, the U.S. is suing to stop AT&T's takeover of Time Warner. There are all sorts of suspicions and rumors that the Department of Justice is doing this uh, due to CNN and President Trump's contentious relationship with that. These have not been proven. Uh, And in fact, some are saying that this lawsuit by the DOJ resembles classic antitrust cases uh, that are pretty much routine. Here to talk about it and put it into perspective is Jennifer Ree, Senior Litigation Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us in our 1130 studios. Jennifer, is this a routine antitrust case? You know, no, I would not call it a routine antitrust case. I would call it a routine theory of harm. And I think the big difference there is that uh, theories of harm from a vertical deal are talked about and discussed. Um, Sometimes they come up and they get resolved in mergers with behavioral remedies. But the reason I say it's not necessarily a routine case is because we haven't seen actual litigation to try to block this kind of a deal in a very, very long time. And it's really kind of a departure from, you know, DOJ precedent in history. And so it is it is surprising. And I think that's why these political ideas are kind of haunting this. Okay, so if the political ideas are haunting this uh, potential uh, combination, I have to uh, uh, assume that somebody in the counsel's office at AT AT&T sat down with Mr. Stevenson, the CEO, even before they decided to make this attempt public to go over some of these issues. Do you think that this was something that was discussed and then said, oh, no, we'll get over it? Or what do you what, how does how does that work? And you're talking about in advising the companies yes, as yeah, to whether exactly. they face risk. You know, I mean, that's what's really tough here. My guess is that the outside lawyers said, look, there there always can be some harms that come from vertical deals. But look, for 50 years, they've been treated in one way. So you will likely be able to close this deal, but you'll likely have to agree to a consent order, a settlement where you moderate your conduct, where you agree that after you merged, you will behave in a certain way. You're probably going to have to make those agreements. But with that, we think you'll be able to close. That's likely the the, the legal opinion that they got. Yeah. So it, the, and they went with that and the Department of Justice kind of turned things 
on their head. I want to talk about the precedent this sets. You know, if this is a departure from the norm, what does this mean about a deal, uh, say, like the Tribune-Sinclair broadcasting merger? I mean, uh, that combination would give the company access to 72 percent of the American television audience. Are you expecting this deal to get the same kind of scrutiny from the Department of Justice? You know, I think that's a great question because it'll be so interesting to see how that's treated. It gives some clue as to whether politics have weighed in on the AT&T Time Warner deal because Sinclair, theoretically, we, we assume is a friend to this administration or the administration's a friend to Sinclair. And if you look at the way past similar deals have been treated, I would expect that they'd have to divest, sell off at least 10 stations, 10 stations in 10 different markets, but possibly even a few more, but at least divest in 10 markets. If we, this would follow the precedent that's been set in similar deals to the Sinclair Tribune deal. If we don't see that, then it makes this all look more political. I'm struggling here also because typically Republican administrations have been more allowing of big deals. That's sort of the uh, assumption that uh, mergers have an easier time getting through uh, under Republican administrations. Is that an inaccurate impression? And, And if it's not, how does this square with that? You know, that's a very accurate impression. And I think there are a lot out there that had that impression, because if you remember, just about a month ago or so, Senator Elizabeth Warren was asking for this new head of antitrust at the DOJ to recuse himself from this deal. And she is against this deal. She has, you know, vocalized her her opinion about it. So obviously what she was thinking is that he would also just sign on the dotted line to get let this go forward as well. I think most of the antitrust community is very surprised by this for that reason. And, and, and that is why you hear people talking about politics and politics weighing in, because this just seems so out of the ordinary. Well, out of the ordinary or not, CNN and Time Warner, they are all content providers, right? They don't actually own any of the distribution assets. That is where AT&T comes in. That's right. So what is the antitrust, what is the argument, if you can make it, what's the antitrust argument that says, no, you're a distribution company, we don't want you owning the content that would then be distributed on your uh, pathways as well mm-hmm. as those of yours, com- your competitors? The argument that's been made here is an economic argument, and it is that by they, they get added leverage by owning the content. It will give them the freedom to raise the price to rival distributors because either they make more money by raising the price or if these distributors refuse to pay that and they have a blackout of their, of their television stations, then some of those subscribers will be lost to that distributor and will come over to AT&T. So in the long run, they'll benefit from it. Does that uh, mean that the next step would be to go after a company like Comcast to divest the or split the content producing division from the distribution division? No, I don't think that, that, that the antitrust agencies would do that at this point unless there is some evidence or some reason that they want to investigate the company for potential anti-competitive conduct at this point. All right. Thanks very much for being with us Thank and sharing uh, the updates. This is a story that's going to keep on giving, indeed. Thank you very much. Uh, Jennifer Rhee is our litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, speaking about AT&T's attempt to acquire Time Warner and uh, pushback from the U.S. Justice Department. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Denver is going to get a Hyperloop or rather a Hyperloop inspired system. And the person who is going to build it uh, is Brogan Bambrogan, founder and chief executive officer of Arivo based in Los Angeles, California. And he joins us now. Uh, Brogan is an early SpaceX engineer and uh, is working on making it quicker for people to get uh, from one major hub to another. Brogan, thank you so much for joining us. Can you uh, give us a sense of what exactly it is that you are working on in Denver? Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, good morning. Um, Yeah, so it is the 21st century. uh, So I figured uh, let's get some more 21st century technology into transportation. So what we're designing is an integrated vehicle system that works in an enclosed environment. Um, So it is kind of like a Hyperloop in that we have a dedicated uh, roadway or guideway that we move our vehicles, uh, but we do not operate in a vacuum. And we're focused more on kind of regional and super regional travel, uh, kind of unlocking traffic in cities is, is, is what we want to do with this new technology. Can you give us some idea of the cost of this new technology? Because there have been some estimates that, uh, well, I know, for example, Elon Musk, when he first put forth the Hyperloop concept, that was back in 2013, I think the cost was estimated at around $11.5 million per mile of Hyperloop. How have you costed this out? Uh, well, we think we're going to be uh, far cheaper than, than other forms of the Hyperloop. You know, one of the things, uh, by eliminating the vacuum, of course, it eliminates the uh, the operating costs, it eliminates some of the capital costs. It doesn't eliminate the operating costs, it brings them down. It uh, brings down the, the uh, capital costs and, of course, makes it uh, much more safer. Uh, so we have a partner in Denver region. Uh, E-470 is a toll road that moves a lot of people around the region already. Uh, with our system, we can move more people on a given lane of road. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about more about that in a second. But uh, we're going to be operating our system at the same cost or lower as the current toll road. Uh, so it should be very, very low cost and everyone will be able to use it. Can you help me picture in my head what this looks like? So it's an enclosed space and you go in your own car or you go in a car that is sort of resting on some kind of magnetic track and it goes to a certain place and goes 200 miles per hour. Am I butchering this? Is that basically... No, it, it's all of those. Like, so okay. if, if, you've, if you've seen um, maybe some of the images of, of classic Hyperloop, see above grade or, or in tunnels, we can do both of those. But Arivo is also uh, designed to work on an existing lane of freeway. So what we can do is we can put our own technology right down on the roadway. We do put an encapsulation over it so it, it keeps the weather off. It keeps tree branches, soda bottles. Uh, basically allows us to short circuit ourselves to level five autonomy. So inside the system, uh, you can drive your own vehicle onto a sleigh. Uh, that way you can take your own stuff. I'm the father of a 14-month-old, so I can assure you we have a lot of stuff in our car. I don't always want to take a lift. Uh, so you can do that. You can put your surfboard or your skis in it, um, and you can zip you know, in our infrastructure and then drive your own car in the last mile. There's we have multiple products. We also have uh, what we call a super metro, sort of like a metro-style product that carries groups of people. They can have be on bicycles or pedestrians. We also have a pallet zipper. Um, and so wherever we have our infrastructure, there's going to be some dedicated places where you, you load and get on it. And then, yeah, you, you end up moving fully autonomously and 200 miles an hour 
um, you know, to the portal closest to your final destination. Is it is it magnetic? Is it is it wind? Are you just being sucked as quickly as possible <laughs> to the other side? I mean, what, we, uh, <laughs> what is this? No, no, no. There's uh, there's no giant sucking sound. Um, it is magnetic uh, levitation and propulsion. So uh, linear electric motors are used in roller coasters today. They're used in aircraft launch systems. So we're just optimizing it for our application on the roadway. Um, uh, we do levitate at high speeds that uh, both enables the high speed itself, but also means it's a super smooth ride because we can actively control that. So it would literally be as smooth as sitting in the chair. Um, so, you know, we're just taking some of these 21st century technologies and really focusing, you know, as populations urbanize, more people are moving to cities, uh, traffic is a major problem. So what we want to do is do more with less. So our focus uh, is on getting more vehicles on a given lane of infrastructure. That's the key. Just to put a quick number to that, uh, given uh, freeway, depending on which standard you use, can move about 2,000 to 3,500 vehicles per lane per hour. The Arivo system can move 20,000 vehicles per lane per hour. So this idea that you can enable regional mobility with less infrastructure. I hate to keep harping on the on the money, but I'm but I'm wondering how much money have have you raised so far to do this, or how much money has the Colorado Department of Transportation put into this partnership? So yeah, so the the study that we've announced, we formed a public private partnership. Uh, CDOT put in about Colorado Department of Transportation put in about two hundred thousand dollars for the first phase of this study, uh, and and if we're successful, then then we like to 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 go a little further with that. Um, our company's privately funded. We're going to be doing our Series A uh, coming up, and I'd be happy to come back on the show and announce that. Uh, but we do have a team of, of over 40 people, mostly engineers, really world-class talent from, from all the most you know, technically impressive companies and, and universities around the world. Amazing team. Where is this being tested? Is there a place where someone could go and actually see something that was built? Because I know that the Hyperloop that Elon Musk has put together, I believe that there's a test center in Nevada. Uh, well, Elon's built a test Hyperloop in Hawthorne, California, and there's a private company that, that built the test system in Nevada. Uh, we are going to be doing that. So, you know, in Los Angeles, where our engineering headquarters is, we're doing component level work. Mind you, we're only, you know, nine months old as a company. And we did announce also a test site in Denver. So we will be doing system level testing, and we're going to have shovels in the ground for our own test site in Q1 of, of next year. You have been, you're only around for nine months, and you've got a 14 month old. You must have had a crazy year. It's, uh, crazy good, but yes, crazy. Um, real quick, in your company, are the actual builders uh, part of the company, or are you going to uh, contract out that work? And is there enough uh, of those types of uh, workers to actually construct something like this? Oh, um, so... You know, our company is really a technology company. As we move into projects, uh, we're all about the partner ecosystem. We've partnered with AECOM, the world's number one design construction firm, on this Denver project. Uh, we have other partners in, in different places around the world. Um, so we'll be building out uh, a workforce in Denver that's going to be a Revo employees, but there'll also be a workforce in Denver that will be supporting the project. So the project will be separate from our balance sheet. All right. Well, uh, we look forward to uh, learning more about it and uh, perhaps even uh, getting a ride on it when it is built. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Brogan Bam Brogan is the founder and the chief executive of the Los Angeles-based Arivo. Hyperloops, how about that?
when we talked about Uber Technologies' agreement to buy 24,000 Volvo cars, including some uh, that are autonomous. The focus was on the fact that drivers are becoming obsolete. But Shiri Ovide, who is a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist here covering tech, points out another very important uh, aspect of this deal, which is Uber is going to own cars. And this is a change for them. Shira joins us now. Uh, Shira, can you just talk a little bit about what your biggest takeaway was from this announcement? Yeah, I was actually very surprised with the Uber Volvo announcement yesterday for the reason you said, right, that this is a company, part of the beauty of the business model at Uber is it doesn't own anything. It doesn't employ people or doesn't employ drivers, at least. The beauty of the business model was it connected uh, people who wanted rides with uh, drivers who were willing to take them places. And it took a cut of the fares and it didn't have to deal with owning cars or other uh, messy and expensive assets. But as you said, Uber is now saying it's going to buy cars from Volvo uh, and retrofit them to so they're driverless. And in, in doing so, it is owning assets for the first time, expensive, depreciating assets. And I wonder what that does to its business model. Does it also mean that Uber is going to have to learn how to service the vehicles? Well, they, they weren't very specific about the servicing aspect of it, but you're right. No matter whether cars have drivers or not, they still need to be serviced and maintained like any car. You need to change the oil. You need to you need rotate to fill the it tires. Up with gasoline, you need to fill it or with you gas. Need recharge it with electricity. Absolutely I'm just wondering right. with all this autonomous driving that is being touted, how is it going to be fueled? Uh, n nobody has really uh, addressed publicly all of these questions about driverless cars. We have seen companies, including Lyft and uh, and Waymo, which is the driverless car business within Google's parent company. Those companies have adopted a different model that they don't seem to be willing necessarily to own cars, but are rather contracting with fleet ownership companies, including the car rental companies we're familiar with, to kind of own and service cars in a future driverless car world. And Uber is obviously taking a different approach, although it's still early and I suspect they're going to do a mix of owning cars and kind of um, um, leaning on service company to own and service cars. You know, talking about Lyft and Weibo, I mean, another way that you can look at this is that this change in Uber's business model is brilliant because now, A, they're, especially given the uh, sort of controversy over Uber in Europe, now they're actually going to be a buyer of European goods, right? So that gives them more political clout. Uh, but, but then also it distinguishes them from Waymo or Lyft. And all of a sudden they actually do have assets, which could be con considered, you know, potentially a benefit, no? Uh, I mean, I think you're right on both points that um, Uber basically said yesterday that they want to have a little bit more control over their future, uh, over this kind of driverless car future. And they believe that actually owning physical the physical cars themselves gives them that control. So that'll be an interesting thing to see. The other point about, you know, the business model changes is, yeah, yeah it could be that um, in the future, Uber's business model looks pretty you know, perky and bright when you kind of take the drivers out of the equation, which is one of obviously the biggest costs and complications in Uber's business. But I think the key to me for me is that we don't really know what a future Uber is going to look like if we assume the driverless cars are going to be ubiquitous. 
How is the company going to make money? What do these sort of financial dynamics look like? And Uber is valued at something like $70 billion. And, you know, that assumes that the company has a lot of its kind of business model questions figured out. And part of my point is it doesn't have those questions figured out. Shira, in all of your conversations uh, with experts in the technology world, is there anybody that points to Uber as being the potential straw that breaks the market's back, that if something were to happen with this valuation or there were to be some question about its ongoing viability, would that cause a rout in technology? That's an interesting question. I don't know that I've heard anybody. I mean, certainly there are questions about what Uber is really worth um, right now, especially because you know SoftBank, the Japanese um, conglomerate, is negotiating to buy stock from Uber shareholders at a significant discount to where the company is currently valued on paper. Um, but I don't know that there would be kind of contagion effect if Uber's valuation were to crater, if the company had significant business problems, um, and certainly not in public markets, I would think, although it might have a uh, cast a pall on other private tech companies. Well done. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much, uh, Shira Ovide, our technology columnist in Bloomberg Gadfly when it comes to uh, all things technological. And you can follow Shira on uh, Twitter at Shira Ovide. And of course, uh, we look forward to more of your reports on Uber. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.